being in journalism can be a troubling and difficult thing, but I don't think anybody could argue in this era that it's not noble and needed and a form of public service that is, that is vital. was Rachel Maddow, MSNBC News anchor and 2020 DuPont Award winner for her very first podcast, Bagman. Hello, and welcome to another episode of On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright. I run the prizes department at Columbia Journalism School, and I'm joined today, as always, by my friend and colleague, Lisa R. Cohen. She runs the DuPont Awards. Hey, Lisa. Hi, Abby. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. And what a year it has been already. What with the president's phone call to Georgia's Secretary of State, and then the election finally being certified after an angry mob attacked the Capitol in Washington on Wednesday. It has been hectic. How are you doing so far this year, Lisa? Hectic, that's a great word. Uh, Well, I feel a little bit like I'm having an out-of-body experience while simultaneously just glued to the TV. You know, really, I'm just trying to keep my head down and stay focused on all the work that we have going on ourselves. This year's DuPont Awards are are approaching very quickly, and we're all really, really busy. And as you know, we can't have our usual in-person ceremony this year, so we've been working really hard the past few months to produce an extra special virtual event. Indeed. Some of you may already know this, but we've completely pivoted to the online event space this year. And this podcast episode is no different, of course. Here I am recording again in the bedroom closet. You sa- you sound great. <laughs> um, and as stressed as I may be right now, I have to admit, it's not all bad because, in fact, sometimes we get to hide out in our homes and it's even easier to talk to people we wouldn't normally have access to. Hi, you guys. Hi. Hey. Hi. We spoke with journalist Rachel Maddow and her partner in crime, producer Michael Yarvitz, in an intimate Zoom call with just the four of us. And now we are bringing that conversation to you. We caught up with Rachel and Michael recently on a snowy winter's day. I apologize for being a little schwitzy. I've been out snow shoveling all morning. And so I'm, I'm actually, I'm having a very aerobic day. <laughs> Don't forget to take a little Advil for the lower back. That's a good idea. In fact, take the Advil, then lie about the fact, say I didn't take it, and then ask for a snow day recovery day off from work. This is a great plan. You're being recorded, I'm just going to say. <laughs> We were recording Michael and Rachel to talk about their 2020 DuPont award-winning podcast, Bagman. The seven-episode series details the forgotten history of former Vice President Spiro Agnew, who served during the Nixon administration and who was, to put it nicely, corrupt. Yeah, like if you thought we'd never seen anything like the events of the last few months in American politics, well, then you probably haven't heard of Spiro T. Agnew. In fact, Rachel and Michael couldn't even fit all the crazy stuff Agnew had done into their several hours long podcast series. They had to write a book about it too. The book is called Bagman, The Wild Crimes, Audacious Cover-Up, and Spectacular Downfall of a Brazen Crook in the White House. Now it's rocketing up the bestseller list. Our episode today includes advice to young journalists and what the collaboration process has been like for Michael and Rachel, but the meat and potatoes of it is really about their new book and their podcast, so we definitely encourage listeners to check both of them out. So without further ado, here's an edited version of our conversation with Rachel Maddow and Michael Yarvitz, starting with an excerpt from the podcast trailer. 
This is a story that is not well known. What stuck in my mind about it was this was in the White House. And the fact of the matter was, he was a crook. Oh my God. But it really should be, especially maybe now. So I guess the first question I'm going to ask, which I know you've been talking a lot about as you promote the book, but why is the story of your DuPont award-winning podcast, and of course your new book, Bagman, about Vice President Spiro Agnew, still relevant to listeners today? I don't think we expected to get like 10 million downloads for the podcast when we did it, but I do think that part of the appeal was that people were surprised and interested to know that there was somebody else in a previous White House who talked like Trump um, and who picked the same targets and went after them in many of the same ways and hated the media and excoriated the media and really railed against the very idea of a free press, but also used press attention from the outrage he was able to get as his superpower in terms of his political heft. Hearing that in the more erudite mouth of Agnew, but being able to hear Trump's words there, I think was of interest in the Trump era. But I think that what Mike and I found is that the reason the story was worth telling was not just to like identify a Trump doppelganger in history, but to, to really tell the story of the good guys. It's not, it's not earth shattering that there was a bad guy who's bad in this particular way in the White House. What is the most important thing about this story is the uh, people who did right by the bad guy in the White House and made the system work. Mike, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I feel like that's sort of the revelation I've come to. Yeah, no, I think it's been interesting. When we first put out the podcast, it was, you know, in the midst of the Robert Mueller investigation. And so the resonant thing was Trump and the sort of Agnew-like tactics that that you could see that Trump was exhibiting. Um, I think it's even more relevant today, and I think what Rachel's alluding to is, you know, aside from Trump is the comparison of Elliot Richardson, who oversaw the investigation as attorney general, and William Barr as the current attorney general. Yes. Um, and the way that both men dealt with their jobs and the pressure that was applied to both of them and how they each reacted to it in very different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it's been interesting. I think while the Agnew to Trump comparison was maybe the thing that resonated the most at first, um, certainly now I think it's as much a story of, you know, the way that the Justice Department and the line prosecutors handled a situation of a criminal in the White House compared to what we've seen over the last, you know, two to four years. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more just uh, about who the good guys were and what they did for people who, who will not have listened to the podcast or have bought the book yet, but will certainly go out and buy it as soon as they hear this? There are some people in the story you will come to know and love. Top of that list is these three young, scrappy federal prosecutors. They're all around 30 years old at the time. They're trying to take a bite out of political corruption in their state. What Barney Skolnick and Tim Baker and Ron Liebman all started to find when they started following the money in Maryland was a scheme, a bribery scheme where local elected officials took thousands of dollars in cash kickbacks from companies that got public contracts. What these young prosecutors were about to discover was that the country didn't just have a criminal president in power but a criminal vice president as well, who of course was next in the line of succession. We have evidence that Vice President Agnew took bribes as county executive governor and even as vice president. Not only is it Watergate, but he's the vice president and we have hard evidence of corruption 
15 $100 bills he gave Agnew in the basement of the White House. This was in the White House. It really was, we're all in this together. And we got to figure out what to do for the country because this is, this is some heavy shit. Mike and I had been talking about the Agnew story as a, a, an underappreciated piece of history that might have interesting allegorical resonance to today. But the reason we decided to do the podcast is because Mike went out and met the prosecutors, met the line prosecutors who had done it, who are all still with us, the, the junior prosecutors from that office, Barney Skolnick and Ron Liebman and Tim Baker, and started talking to them and got them on tape. And it turns out nobody had gone and talked to them about this stuff. And Mike playing me the first tape of of these guys recognizing, Mike giving them the information that their boss, the U.S. attorney, had been pressured, not just by the White House, but by George H.W. Bush and by his brother in the Senate and all this stuff, and had never, ever let that pressure sink down onto them while they continued to do their work. And hearing their emotion 45 years later, learning this for the first time, I was like, I think we have, I think something here is on fire. Um, and so it was those three prosecutors. George Bell was the U.S. attorney. Elliot Richardson was the attorney general. Henry Peterson is a more of a complicated figure and here was the head of the criminal division. But Richardson and Bell and those three prosecutors are really the stars here. Um, but Mike tracking them down, that was it. That was the magic. Yeah, and I think, you know, these three prosecutors, Barney Skolnick, Tim Baker, Ron Liebman, they did something that was incredibly important for the country that in a lot of ways saved the republic. And for 45 years, it has been overshadowed by Watergate and various other scandals that have come. And so this was a moment and a thing that they did that was incredibly meaningful to them. And they wanted to talk about it. And also, you know, in addition to them, I think the other heroes here are, you know, the IRS agents that they worked with who were their partners in crime in the U.S. Attorney's Office. Can you tell us a little bit about how you approached reporting this story or kind of the shoe leather that went into it, going to archives, listening back on old audio recordings. Talk to us about the process. Mike, you should, you should do that because what I, I benefited from was Mike going out into the world and, and reaping uh, what was out there and then coming to me and saying, I think we need to do this as audio. Um, and I think that we need to do this as a, as this is not going to be like a one 20 minute thing. Like this, this needs an arc, but it was Mike, because, because you found the, all the, like five different treasure troves of, of material and people to talk to. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was on the ground kind of going to all of these different archives across the country, really. I mean, it was the Nixon archives in California. It was the uh, Elliot Richardson archives in Washington, D.C. It was the George Bell archives at Frostburg State University in Maryland. It was Spiro Agnew's archives at the University of Maryland. And in all of these cases, or at least most of them, you know, these were documents that had just been sitting in archives um, and, you know, dutifully preserved by archivists and librarians. And in a lot of cases, not a lot of people had gone through them. And so um, a lot of the early process of this was going, you know, and spending days going through the documents and trying to figure out what's important, what, you know, is maybe new, what's going to be sort of resonant and relevant. And I, you know, I remember a moment going when I was at George Bell's archives at Frostburg State, um, the U.S. attorney, and finding his memo to file in which he, you know, acknowledges in there that the Republican Party chairman at the time, George H.W. Bush, was putting pressure on him and his brother to shut down this investigation on behalf of Agnew. And I 
I remember sitting in there and sort of snapping a picture of the document and sending it to Rachel and being like, whoa, this is, this is a big deal. Let me, let me jump in here too, because the other piece of this, which was a shock, was the Haldeman, H.R. Haldeman audio diary from the Nixon White House. Everybody knows about the Nixon White House tapes and they're famous and they resu resulted in the end of his presidency in that important Supreme Court case, which ought to be the controlling precedent as to whether or not a president is subject to the legal process and all of that stuff. But the Nixon White House tapes are terrible quality. Right? They're really hard to listen to. And there are painstakingly put together transcripts of those things, which make it easier for journalists and archivists to work with them. But the Haldeman diary is crystal. It is, he's speaking, must have been speaking directly into a dictaphone. And Haldeman was up to his neck in so many of the interesting things. And so getting that, hearing that, uh, which was his, you know, business-like, non-emotional recounting of what happened in each day and who he talked to and what they were trying to get from him. That was like, I, I still don't believe that that hasn't been more plumbed as a, as a journalistic and, and historical source. Rachel, you recently said uh, in your interview on Stephen Colbert on The Late Show that this is a great time to be in the news business because we've never been more vital. What did you mean? I mean that the story of the Trump administration the real story of the Trump administration, the behavior of senior officials, the m motives and actions of the president, the potential criminal exposure of the president, um, almost all of that story has been told, and I believe will continue to be told, in American newspapers. There are already you know, supposedly tell-all books by people who were there and disillusioned, but they don't tell all that much the way that we have learned about the behavior of this administration at every level has been through journalists, both access journalists, people who can get sources to talk to them inside, and also prying outsider journalists um, who have used the Freedom of Information Act and have used other investigative techniques to grab stuff uh, where they can. And with a normal law-abiding administration, it's not that journalism isn't important, but with this one, it's been the way we get the vital signs every day. We love hearing that here at the Columbia Journalism School because people constantly say to us, what are you saying to your students these days? It must be so disheartening to be in the press and to be sending these people off into these careers that are gonna be so troubling and difficult. Well, yes, being, a, being in journalism is, can be a troubling and difficult thing, but I don't think anybody could argue in this era that it's not noble and needed um, and a form of public service that is I mean, I'll say it again, that is, that is vital. There's, there's a reason that despots imprison journalists, right? That if journalism is nothing, and if journalists are, you know, are, are fleas on the elephant, then the elephant wouldn't, would, wouldn't spend all of their time to try to swat down and get rid of the journalists in their midst. They do it because the power of journalism, the worse you are as a leader, the more powerful journalists are in exposing who you are, and so the people know. I would just add to that briefly, you know, <clears throat> Rachel has often been fond of saying when it comes to voting and when it comes to civic life, you know, your country needs you. I would say the same applies to journalism at this point. You know, your country needs you. It's a public, public interest journalism, I think, is more important now than ever. So that segues us very well into the next question, which was that you were honored in January 2020 with the DuPont Baton for Bagman for substantive original reporting in the public interest. How did that feel? <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's, um, 
it's, I don't have words. It was a really big honor. And, you know, I'm, I will just say the elephant in the room here is that I'm in the part of the journalism world that isn't exactly considered to be classy. Um, like I'm not, <laughs> like primetime cable news is not exactly prestige journalism, I know. But I do feel like it was really nice to, to have that kind of an honor from this kind of an entity for the, for the substantive reporting that Mike most that, that it was mostly Mike's doing in putting this together and that we were able to present in a way that it got to so many ears. Um, for me, it was, it's still just sort of an overwhelming honor. Yeah, I would echo that. I think after the shock wore off um, from getting, getting the email from you guys, um, it was just so humbling. I mean, you know, I studied journalism in college and I've been in the field since and the DuPont Award has always just been, you know, sort of on Mons Olympus. Can you say anything about why it's important, why the DuPont Awards and awards like that are important? Because I think sometimes people don't know. I mean, I think it's important because I think it's important to stick a flag here and say, listen, you know, this is recognized within our industry and among us as professionals and the people who especially train people to the standards and uphold the standards of this field, that this is good work. If you want to see an example of good work, this is good work. Um, in the same way that like it's getting a, this is, this is a little bit dopey, but there's a, there's a lot of similarity between getting a master's degree and getting a doctoral degree. Um, but one of the things about getting a doctoral degree is that your thesis needs to be an original contribution to the field. You need to advance human understanding of the topic in which you are working. And that's not the only criteria that gets you a PhD, but that is a baseline criteria. And it's the same sort of thing here to be able to say like, this is the type of standard to which we are working. And this is what we recognize and teach one another about, about when we think about doing good work here. Um, that's, I think that, I think that at least to me, that's why those things are important. Like looking back over past years, nominees and awardees for the DuPont is a, like, it's a catalog that will swell your heart as a journalist in terms of what American journalists have done. Um, and that's, I think it's important. It's important we tell each other stories and recognize things as, as the sort of the standard to achieve. I would love to hear from each of you um, a little bit about the collaborative effort that went into the podcast and now with the book. How did that reporting relationship work? You know, Rachel and I have worked together for a long time. Um, and so I think that we sort of know instinctively what each other is interested in and and sort of what is going to, you know, sort of drive our, our reporting. And so in terms of the podcast, it was extremely collaborative. I mean, you know, she's obviously got a nightly show to produce. And so I had the luxury of being able to sort of be on the ground and to be interviewing these guys and uh, digging up information. But at every step of the way, it was sort of, okay, here's what I've come up with. We talk about it and we sort of, you know, figure out what's interesting about it. Okay. You know, at the end of it, when we're trying to figure out how to lay out the story, it was comforting to have, obviously, a partner in crime in this and somebody who you can, you know, check in with to just sort of gut check about what the reporting steps should be and what the most, you know, compelling parts of the story are. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And what's resonating. And that's a different thing for the audio production of a podcast and for the book. So, like, you know, Mike is up in the, in the wilderness, uh, talking to Barney Skolnick and getting, having this incredible interview in which there's, you know, Barney is expressing some emotion and there's some heat in terms of the back and forth. There's some revelation. There's some definitely new information that we're getting from him that's going to lead to other reporting. And, 
um, you know, Mike lets me know early on, like, my mind is blown. This transcript is, you're going to die. Uh, and he produces a log of, of that because I'm a sort of written material based human. And he's pulled selects of, of things that he thinks that we should consider that may work for what we're doing or that we may just need to be quoting and, and using as the basis of other reporting or bringing to other people for furthering the story. Um, and then I'm, you know, going through all of that and listening to it with the selects and saying, no, no, we need to start 30 seconds earlier there. And Mike's like, well, this means this episode of the podcast is going to be four hours long. <laughs> and it's like, we go um, and then, you know, the editing process is brutal too, because I talk too much and want everything in there. And, you know, the, the, the knock on me, which I think is true is like, if I'm going to tell you about today's snowstorm, I have to start with a meteorite that landed here. And, then, <laughs> like, and that's true. That's my problem in this story too. But part of the reason I think Mike and I have always worked so well together is that we do have similar interests in terms of, um, storytelling, but he's much better at me at, um, being concise and knowing that you do not have to give people a 12 course meal if what you're trying to do is make them taste the gravy. And that is my weakness and his strength. And I think that uh, there's, I mean, there's no, there, there could be a Bagman podcast and book without me, but there could not be it without, without Yarvitz. So tell us about the book. Why the book? Why now? Why should people who love the podcast go buy your book? Like me. <laughs> In part because there's new stuff in it. Yeah, no, I think that even though we did seven episodes of the podcast, there was still so much stuff that we could not include in the podcast that ends up getting, you know, left on the cutting room floor. After the podcast aired, we got approached by somebody who said, I have this trove of documents about what Agnew did after he left the vice presidency. Are you interested in it? Yes. It's like, yes, we are very interested <laughs> in that. Um, and so we continued reporting out that end of the story, which is included in the book, um, which is a wild tale. I can, re I can remember the day in my office when Mike showed up with the scan of the document in hand to be like, I have figured out what Spiro Agnew did after he was out of the White House. <laughs> he became a foreign agent working for the Saudi royal family as an international anti-Semite for hire. They paid him to rail against the Jews. Uh, uh, should we do another episode? I was like, uh, I don't know that Bagman gets another episode. I don't even know technically how that would work. And that was like part of it. Like, oh uh, yeah, we have to do something with that. But then also really substantive new reporting that emerged based on the response to the podcast about this crucial and very timely matter of the uh, president of, of all U.S. presidents having a get out of jail free card um, in, in terms of immunity from prosecution by the Justice Department. The revelations about the, the way the Office of Legal Counsel um, arrived at that weird conclusion around the Agnew scandal, I think actually do bear have our newsworthy now and bore reporting out for for current times and we just we sort of needed more space to do that can you talk to us a little bit about that how does what happened in the spiro agnew story bring us to today in that regard the presidential immunity from prosecution it was not like inscribed on a tablet and given to Alexander Hamilton. And now it's like part, and you can cite where it is in the constitution. It comes from a series of OLC memos that started with the Agnew prosecution at a time when Agnew and Nixon were very happy to kill off one another in order to save, the, save themselves. 
And there's this incredible anecdote in, in the book where Agnew actually goes to the Democratic-controlled House and says, please impeach me. And the response from the House Judiciary Chairman uh, to Agnew's lawyer is, you can tell Agnew to go F himself. <laughs> Which is like, wait, he was asking, I get that, but he was asking to be impeached. Maybe you guys do want to impeach him. Um, the reason he wanted to be impeached is because he thought that he would, he would play his cards there, that he might be able to avoid removal from office through the impeachment process. He was very popular still with the Republican base. But he also thought that if the impeachment process started, that would stop the indictment process, which could end with him going to prison, which is what he wanted. And so he goes, his lawyers are asserting that he can't be indicted, but nobody knows if that's true. And the OLC decides, the, the OLC is, is tasked with answering that question. Nixon did not want the impeachment process to start around Agnew because he thought then he would get impeached. And Nixon also did not want to get indicted. And so the way that you thread that needle in order to answer both imperatives is to say Agnew can be indicted. And so therefore, don't start impeaching him. But Nixon cannot be indicted because of a magical curtain of immunity that we have discovered between these two constitutional offices, which has no basis in fact or even legal reasoning. It's not based on, you know, it's, it, it hasn't been tested in the courts and it's just a policy that's relied on and was relied on by Robert Mueller. And I think it's not often remembered that that policy was born out of this Agnew crisis, which, as Rachel is saying, um, you know, the crisis was for Elliot Richardson, the attorney general, was how do we get Agnew out of the line of succession before Nixon goes down? And against that imperative, the Justice Department, you know, tried to come up with some way to do that and to put pressure on Agnew and his lawyers to say, okay, actually we can't, we've looked at the issue and we can't indict you. Um, and so you really need to go. But it, it's, it was not our, you know, not to cast dispersions, but it was not an entirely rigorous process. And, you know, for more than 45 years, it's been the controlling policy of the Justice Department, but it was born out of this very strange imperative of getting Agnew out of the line of succession. And so to re-examine that and not just to accept it as the sort of policy, I think has been, you know, an important thing I, I think to bring to light. Yeah. It's like trying to imagine if Mike Pence was even more, I don't even know the right word, corrupt or, you know, <laughs> was engaged in activities that were ethically and morally questionable, even more so than Donald Trump. Like that is a mind blowing thing to imagine. Just imagine mm -hmm. Pence committing Agnew's crimes. Like imagine if Pence has been, he had some scheme running in Indiana where he was, you know, where he was taking kickbacks from people who got state contracts. And when he got to the White House, he decided that he was going to not only keep taking his bribes, but he was going to try to expand that to federal contracts. And he's, he is Corrupt. And the IRS agents have him dead to rights. And there's enough evidence to prepare what might have been a 40 count felony indictment against him. You know, and meanwhile, like he's poised to enter the Oval Office because Trump, it's, you know, let's say that the let's say that the, the impeachment was going to go differently or Trump was going to go down for his, for other reasons. I mean, that's that's what Elliot Richardson was confronted with. Ramrod straight, Mr. Integrity, Elliot Richardson dealing with that mess. And that OLC memo was kind of like the fishing hook they put out there to try to pull themselves out of it. And um, yeah, it's, 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 an, it's, it's worthy of a podcast and a book. <laughs> Just to be clear, that's what Agnew did. That is not what Pence has done. Correct. <laughs> Allegedly, yes. <laughs>
<laughs> Lisa, should we ask our advice to journalism students question, which we always ask our guests advice for this class graduating in the coming spring? Mike, you go first. <laughs> um, it's difficult. I think it's a difficult moment maybe to be entering the journalism field in terms of the plight of local newspapers and you know, all of the economic pressure that's placed on it. But I think, you know, as we, Rachel and I kind of discovered and hopefully showed a little bit through this podcast is <clears throat> there are all of these different platforms and opportunities to do good journalism. And so, you know, maybe it is a podcast, maybe it's an investigative podcast series that unearths some important thing about some public interest issue. You can do great journalism in a lot of different ways now. I would say, you know, writing and honing your writing and storytelling is one of the things that I have found to be the thing that unlocks doors um, in journalism in terms of, you know, opportunities in the field and also just having impact with your, with your reporting and with your journalism. And so just in terms of practical advice that I could maybe give journalism students, it's just focus, focus on your writing and just the sort of you know, the basic tenets of, of journalism, the who, what, when, why, where, how, all of that. I would absolutely echo that. Um, you know, we maintain a big staff at the show and we're part of a big network that has lots of people working for it. And the thing that makes people rise above and get noticed and, and move in the industry, uh, I would say is two things. One is ethics and reliability. Like, are you sound and solid and dependable? Um, and can you write? And if you can't write, there's going to be a much lower limit on what you can do in the business than uh, you might think, because that's going to be the work product on which you are judged almost always. And, you know, whether you're writing for your own voice, because you're going to be doing a reported podcast, or you're going to be doing something on video or audio, um, that's you explaining your reporting on something, that's still writing. Or whether you are writing for the eye, because you're writing for print, whether it's digital or, or paper the ability to tell a story well is paramount. Uh, Michael, what are you working on now? I mean, aside from publicizing this great effort, your latest effort, what's your next project? Don't tell them, don't tell them, don't tell them. <laughs> <laughs> we won't tell anyone. Um, <laughs> there may be future Spiro Agnew stuff in the works. Um, really, you know, the book has been a big part of what I've been working on for the last months. Um, but what I'm also looking at is doing additional podcast stuff, finding the next story to tell and broadening the scope of, you know, investigative, political, historical stories that you can tell through podcast and get people engaged in. Well, that was very, very, very elusive. That was perfectly done. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm psyched to see what it is. I have to say, I mean, you guys have an audience waiting, so good for you. Thank you. We are grateful to you guys for making time for us. I know how busy you are, and it's really been a thrill to get to, to catch up with you, so. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks, you guys. I gotta go snow shovel. Careful with the shoveling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Bye, guys. Thank you again to Rachel Maddow and Michael Yarvitz for what was a delightful conversation. I can't wait to see what they come out with next. 
In the meantime, this episode caps off our series of podcasts about the 2020 roster of DuPont winners. Starting next month, we'll be celebrating the 2021 winners. Our virtual DuPont ceremony is on February 9th, featuring hosts Anderson Cooper, Michelle Norris, and a few very special guest presenters. So check our website, dupont.org, for more information later this month. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by J-School grad, Christina Shaman. We also had production assistance from Arcelia Martin and Rose Gilbert. Our music is by Dylan Nowak. Follow us on Twitter at Columbia Journ. Until next time.